as it is in heaven. The focus of Jesus' teaching concerns the good news of the reign of God. So Jesus is encouraging this small group of men by explaining that when they respond to the world in a certain way, with certain attitudes and behaviours, God's blessing will be upon them. So let's look at our Beatitudes for today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And we're going to have a a, a short look at each one in tongue. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness here is translated as justice, but it's really conformity to what God would deem to be just and right. Perhaps it's important to recognize it's not about what we might think justice would be. Justice isn't meeting out punishment or getting revenge so that we feel better. We're to seek to be in line with the will of God here, which means justice for everyone. I wonder if you've ever been thirsty. You'll notice that hunger and thirst are in the present tense. This is an ongoing hunger and thirst. One which we never give up on until it's satisfied. When you're really thirsty, all you can think of is getting a drink. In fact, I was standing at the, um, the gate um, of my neighbour's garden last week when it was very, very hot. And she said to one of, children, one of her children, can you bring me a drink? She's got three children. They were all out in the garden. Um, and, and they didn't. So late, she said, can, you, can somebody bring me a drink? Could one of you get me a drink? Oh, look, I'm going to pass out here if you don't bring me a drink. <laughs> she was getting quite frustrated. At that point, it should only, you know, she'd probably had a drink a few hours before, um, but she was getting desperate by that point. When you're really thirsty, the only thing you can think of is getting that drink of water. It's not the top priority, it's the only priority. And the same applies to hunger. When we're really hungry, the only priority is getting food. The first few verses of Isaiah chapter 42 make it crystal clear that the main work of the servant sent by God will centre on justice. Three times in the first four verses, the word justice rang out from Isaiah's poetry as we heard this morning. The servant will bring justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will establish justice in the earth. When the early Christians identified Jesus with Isaiah's servant, they would have recognized that Jesus' primary goal in his earthly ministry was to bring justice to the nations and to root it deeply into the soil of the world. Beyond the mainland, right out to the islands, it says. In all such nations, all people will have equal access to the goods and services of that place. They will all know inherently that their primary responsibility and goal is the welfare of all and each of their neighbours. All people of such nations know that when one member suffers, all suffer. 
This blessing, I think, is not so much for those who are in desperate need, who are helpless, the poor, the lost, the powerless, the lonely, but for those who see that need and yearn to change it for the better and are willing to work to bring about that change and able to work to bring about that change. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The word satisfied implies fully and completely satisfied, doesn't it? Filled to the brim, in other words. No lack. The wonderful news is that if you are moved to action by your desire for justice, the Lord will grant it to you. What a promise. And this is in line with, I I think, what we hear in the next chapter when Jesus says, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. No doubt that God is with us in these things and will fulfill our needs when we turn to him. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I suppose we have to conclude that God sent a saviour because the greatest need of mankind was for mercy. The Jews were looking for a king or a leader who would restore their lands and their fortunes. But God didn't send an economist or a scientist or a general to lead them into battle. He sent Jesus. The word mercy, as Jesus uses it, describes an attitude of God. God is said to be rich in mercy. Mercy has a wide range of meanings, everything from forgiving sins to healing the sick to giving money to the poor, all of which involve concrete acts rather than just having an attitude. Generally, mercy, of course, means withholding the judgment you deserve. In the Greek culture where Jesus lived, it was used in the context of whitewashing a wall, of wiping out an impurity or cancelling a debt even. So mercy goes beyond sympathy for someone to empathy and beyond empathy to compassion. What we're talking about in mercy really is love in action. It's notable that the word mercy and the word kindness are derived from the same Greek word. So this beatitude could read... Blessed are those who show mercy through forgiveness, compassion, and kindness, for they will receive mercy. Interestingly, any of you know who, who know Dr. Wayne Dyer, he's written many, many books, says kindness is not something you do, it's something you are. And I think when we're talking about the Beatitudes, this is something we have to keep in mind. You not only wash out the deed that was done against you, but, and this is a real challenge, you find a way to help the person who's done it to you. Another way to put it would be active compassion. The merciful are not only sorry for the suffering of others, but actually work to relieve it and alleviate it. You see, mercy is an action not a reaction. 
as anger might be, or resentment, or bitterness, which is often our reaction, isn't it, when we feel wronged by someone. We're called to be forgiving. But even that forgiveness isn't enough unless we understand that we're to wipe out the injury done to us by another. And then also to help them to recovery. And that's the rub, isn't it? It's one thing to say, I forgive you. It's another completely to be actively involved in mercy. In a basic sense, then, the merciful are healers, people who seek to put right that which has gone wrong. They favor the removal of everything that prevents life from being as God intends. Poverty, ostracism, hunger, disease, debts, demons, whatever it might be. And the blessing pronounced on the merciful is that they will receive mercy. Presumably not only for themselves, but also for those on whose behalf they've sought it. The followers of Jesus are able to show mercy, though, not because of their inherent goodness, but rather because they've been shown mercy. So mercy is an attitude of God, which God's people, that's us, reflect into the world. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Many commentators believe that the real accent in Matthew 6 Beatitude is on integrity. The words pure in heart seem to represent the true self, who you really are. Not what you might pretend to be. So to understand with the heart means that we understand truly. To forgive from the heart means that we forgive truly. In my estimation, to be pure in heart isn't easy. We're all products of what we've been through and what our experiences have been. And that does colour our attitudes and our behaviours. Pure in heart is about the centre of a being being cleansed from the old way of living. The psychiatric term catharsis comes from the same root here too. Catharsis is about purging the old to make way for the new. The pure in heart are actually cleaned up and we've just sung about refiner's fire. Um, It's God who does that work. So the only way to be pure in heart, I would suggest, is to know God's healing love and forgiveness in your own life. If you do not, then you're unlikely to know the freedom to be pure, as you'd not be able to recognize absolute truths. In in John uh, chapter 8, Jesus says to the Jews who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you don't know the truth, you can't be free of your own stuff enough to show mercy and to seek justice for others. Jesus goes on to explain in that chapter that we're slaves to sin. So unless we hold to his teaching, we cannot be pure in heart. But should we surrender ourselves to God's healing power, he will purify our hearts. 
Only then can we be truly loving towards God and towards others. If you look at the last verse of chapter 5, this chapter we're looking at at the moment, you'll see we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's work, not ours. And the amazing result, the wonderful result of surrendering to God's healing power is that we are blessed by being able to see God. I think that's an amazing blessing that Jesus is talking about here. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. An important distinction is that peacemakers are not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers often use force, as the Roman authorities did, bringing peace by um, defeating enemies and ruling with military force to ensure order. The early Christians, though, believed in peace through justice, peace through righting wrongs and treating all people equally and with dignity. I'd also warn, beware of those who would be peace fakers. I was saying to the early service uh, that this is quite, I feel quite passionate about this one because I'm describing my family in, as peace fakers. Peace fakers will go to any lengths to avoid any kind of conflict, confrontation or argument. In doing so, what they do is settle for a counterfeit peace that's based on avoiding the real issues. They avoid talking about things because it just might upset another person. Or they give up or give in, even when the issue is vital. That's something we're not asked to do. We're not asked to give up or give in. But to keep going, to hunger and thirst for this justice. Some people will even try to sit on both sides of the fence. You'll have met people who'll agree with anyone just for peace. But peace is not appeasement. Not upsetting the apple cart means nothing ever is resolved. Peace at any price isn't peace. We need to be very careful. That's not how we are trying to create peace in our world. Paul says in Ephesians, tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all one. Peacemakers are prepared to tell the truth and to trust God for the outcome. That's quite a big ask, isn't it? God wants us to be peacemakers above everything else. But peacemakers use their influence to reconcile opposing party strife among individuals, among families, among churches, among communities. They change hostile attitudes to attitudes that seek the best interests for everyone. Peacemaking is therefore isn't a passive attitude, but exerting positive actions for reconciliation. Peacemakers are those disciples who strive to prevent contention and strife. They're active makers of peace. But to be a peacemaker, you have to understand that true peace is not absence of conflict. But an absence of conflict in which opposite sides are being brought together in righteousness. I'm just going to repeat that one. 
True peace is an absence of conflict in which opposite sides are being brought together in righteousness, ending in a right relationship. Peacemakers want peace without compromise that is lasting and worthwhile, really means something. And you just need to watch the news to know that that's what our world needs. But when we're trying to help people, we have to do it gently. Isaiah proclaimed that God will send a spirit-filled servant, not a conqueror or a tyrant. So we heard, this is how justice will be brought about. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Yet he will not falter or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. Justice will come, but peacefully, not the way the Jews were expecting. But just a word of warning that peace has a price. You can't focus on fixing a problem if you're focused on blaming at the same time. Blame never um, reaches a peaceful outcome. If you want peace in your home, your marriage, your church, the world, there is a price to pay. It may cost you your self-centeredness or your selfishness. It will certainly cost you your self-inflated ego. There's one to go home and think about. You might even have to admit, maybe others have a point, and maybe I'm the one who's wrong here. It's letting go of the self to let God take control. And when we do that... Others will see God in us and in the work that we do. And we will be called children of God. What an honour that would be. Now, just as you thought you were going to get a sermon from me without the science bit, here it comes. It gladdens my heart. The more I understand scientifically, the more the truths of Jesus are validated. Isn't that quite amazing? And that's true of today's Beatitudes the quest for justice and mercy and peace arises out of our natural response to others when God's spirit is at work in our lives. Initially, we empathise. And with the advent of MRI scans, they've established that the emotional response in the brain is exactly the same, whether we feel the pain ourselves or watch somebody else experiencing that pain. Compassion grows out of empathy. Compassion is feeling for someone. We acknowledge the pain and have a compassionate desire for the person to be free of it. And then we're motivated to help them with an act of kindness, which moves us to seek justice, be merciful and create peace. Recent scientific studies have proven that kindness, compassion and forgiveness changes the brain, impacts the heart and the immune system in the most amazing way, and can be an antidote to depression. There have been an enormous number of studies done over the past, say, 10, 12 years particularly, which show the effects of kindness on the individual who's being kind, not on the people who receive the kindness, but the people who are being kind. 
I thought it was quite amusing that when psychologists first studied Tibetan monks, they thought there was something wrong with their instruments. The power readings from the monks' brains were so high that it were unlike anything anybody had ever seen before. Years of prayer, meditation and compassion training had significantly developed the left frontal lobe of their brain, which were much bigger in these individuals and probably are in people who pray um, here, who pray a lot for other people. It's wonderful news that these are the things that being kind and compassionate can do for you, make you happier. So there is perhaps an argument for those who do translate blessed as happy in in some translations. Alleviate depression, improve relationships, protect your heart, boost your immune system, reduce inflammation in the body, lower blood pressure, and help you to live longer. These are hugely significant findings. They're not tiny little effects. They're massive effects. We're actually genetically wired to be kind, it turns out. That's why it's good for us. When we don't show kindness and compassion, that's what's bad for us. It stresses out our nervous system and isn't good for our health. This is wonderful news indeed. We are richly blessed physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually when we seek justice, mercy, and peace in our world. Amen.